So the topic of delusion. Would you please discuss delusion? Greed and hatred abound in my practice. Delusion is neglected, ignored. And delusion in its nature, of course, is much harder to see than greed and aversion. And I've taken the, uh, some of the so many of the other questions, so <laughs> which I have sorted kind of in um, where they slot into a discussion. And so I'm going to try to kind of, as I go through various aspects of delusion, I'll reach to these other questions to help like fill out the conversation. So greed, aversion, and delusion are the three, um, sometimes they're called the unwholesome roots of our action. And a lot of times when we talk about the attitude, I point to those three as being three key attitudes that are often not seen. And so a lot of times the question does come up, well, okay, I can see the attitudes of greed and aversion, but how on earth do I see delusion? How is that even possible to see delusion? And so some, some of it is um, some of the way it, we can start to see delusion is to have some descriptions of how delusion works in our minds so that we can begin to recognize, oh, that process is at work. So there may be delusion functioning. Another way that we begin to see delusion, um, and this is where we can start to see it more directly, is when we have seen something uh, where, where we have actually seen through a delusion, just through being with the practice, something, sometimes something happens for us where we, we recognize that a delusion has away, fallen away and we're seeing something clearly now. And, um, and yet it's impermanent often that that condition for seeing clearly remains. And so the delusion returns. You know, and sometimes as those delusions fall away, and I, I know you, you've all experienced something like this where, you know, some, suddenly something's just like, wow, it just seems so obvious. How could I not see this? How could I not see that um, these, this, uh, this perspective is creating suffering? How could I not see that? And it just seems so obvious that w with a different perspective, the suffering is, is much less. And yet the delusion comes back. And then there's the recognition, well, I guess it's not so obvious. You know, it may not be so obvious that that, it seems very clear when the delusion is gone. But when the delusion is back, it is just like obscuring. And yet having seen that delusion fall away, we can much more directly understand, oh yes, I know now this is delusion. Because we've seen the absence of that particular kind of delusion. And so this is a way we see it more directly. But I think uh, it's helpful to hear kind of a variety of the ways that delusion appears. And so I'm going to talk about, talk about a variety of um, types of delusion maybe. Um, 
First, I'll just say that I'd say delusion is the most fundamental of these three unwholesome roots of greed, aversion, and delusion. And so it kind of makes sense in a way that greed and aversion are easier to see. They're the more obvious kind. Delusion is kind of at their base, at their, at their core. And with, um, without delusion, greed and aversion don't arise. So it's the, the greed and aversion are based in fundamental misunderstandings, fundamental incorrect perception. And I'll talk more about that later. And so, you know, there can be delusion in the absence of greed and aversion, but there is not greed and aversion in the absence of delusion. So I often explore the kind of various levels of delusion um, in, in, in different ways, like kind of what's the most obvious kind of delusion, and then slightly subtler, and then even more subtler. Um, so three aspects that I'll, I'll explore today. One is kind of a delusion of just basically non-mindfulness, being disconnected from experience, not aware, and that's kind of the most obvious form of delusion when we're not present. Um, a second form of delusion, we may be aware, and yet we are unaware of perspectives or views or beliefs or agendas that are informing how we meet the world and um, informing essentially what comes in to our system. So this is a, a second level of delusion, and this I'll call something like um, you know, delusion based in our personal conditioning. Conditioning from our families. So some of it is very personal, you know, our own families, our own physical bodies, our own um, way that we've navigated the world, the conditioning, our own personal conditioning can create some of these views that create a filter through which we see the world and unaware of that filter. The unawareness of the filter is the delusion. Uh, some of those personal kinds of conditionings come from, um, uh, from society, from culture. That's, that's, that's in this, this level of delusion. So delusion based on our, our pers on our conditioning. And then the deepest level of delusion, I'd say, kind of like the delusion, in these other delusions, you know, we, we, sh we can share with greater or lesser numbers of people the personal delusions that we have. Some of our personal delusions are really personal, and we seem to be the only one that has that particular delusion. Um, and then there are other delusions that we share with vast swaths of other people. Whole, whole cultures will share a delusion. And those, those can be particularly tenacious because you're wandering around with people who share that, that belief or that delusion. And so there's very little ability for anybody to see through it because so many people share that same belief. But still, they are, they are conditioned by... Uh, culture, by society, by family, by you know, just our, our personal conditioning. 
And then there's a level of delusion that's even more fundamental that I would say is conditioned by our human humanness. These are delusions that we all share as human beings. Um, the most fundamental distortions. And again, very, very difficult to see because humans share these delusions. And the basic three delusions. We tend to take what is impermanent to be permanent. We tend to take what's unreliable to be reliable. We tend to take what's not self to be self. So this is the levels of delusion that uh, we'll just touch on today. And you know, I recently gave um, eight Dharma talks on delusion. <laughs> kind of like taking time to go through all of this stuff. And there's a, l there's a lot to say. And so I feel like I'm really just going to skim the surface here. So this um, uh, kind of delusion, not connecting, disconnection. This is the you know, basically non-mindfulness when we're not aware when we're lost in thought, you know, we get, take birth into a world of thought. We, we, we can sometimes see this um, form of delusion when we wake up, when mindfulness returns, the moment that mindfulness returns, we can um, touch into kind of the sense of how it was to have so bought into that unreal world have just you know taken up residence in in a thought and believed its reality in that moment and so as we come out of that it's almost like a, a bubble bursts and we see wow you know no I'm not back in that situation and yet wow that there was seeing how the mind was so caught in the belief of it that's a, a way in which we can see that the mind was deluded often in that place you know, what, what kind of obscures seeing the deluded nature of that is that often when we're coming out of some kind of uh, living in some world, you know, some recreation of a past or a, a kind of a projection into the future, when we come out of that bubble, often there is some kind of emotionality related to that bubble. You know, some kind of, you know, we've woken up in the, in the memory of having an argument with somebody two weeks ago. And the emotions that have been created are more obvious and more, they, they, kind, of, they kind of are what is in the foreground. And so it's harder to recognize the delusive nature of having been believing that it was happening. We can kind of acknowledge in that moment that, yeah, I was caught in a belief or caught in that unreal world, but we didn't really see that. What we're feeling is the, the charge of the experience. And so this, um, so, so, you know, waking up into a thought like that, we can, we can maybe begin to see that kind of sense of disconnection, or in meditation, sometimes we can see when we wake up from just being drifting. You know, that's, that may be a little bit easier. When we're drifting, and not particularly caught in a charged thought, often when we're drifting, it's not so much that we really take up residence in those thoughts. You know, it's not like 
It's not like we're really believing them, but we're disconnected. And again, in the moment that mindfulness returns, there's a kind of a, a recognition of the distinction between this now being here, knowing that I'm here, knowing, being fully aware, and the experience a moment before between just being kind of lost in a vagueness or lost in that, in that um, kind of a world or a, a, just a, a belief in what was going on in our minds. And so we can, we can begin to see that in that moment, what that experience is of being lost or disconnected. So some other forms of this often take shape as, you know, like uh, sloth and torpor, sleepiness, dullness, restlessness. So the mind spinning, whirling, or just being lost in a fog. But again, as we've been pointing to, it's not inherently that those are delusive in nature. It's like we have a habit of delusion with certain kinds of experiences. We have a habit of being lost in sleepiness or restlessness but there's not an inherent delusiveness to the state of sleepiness. Mindfulness can be there in that. So a couple of the questions that that are uh, related to this aspect of delusion. Please describe what a mind is that is more or less aware. I've used that kind of phrase from Joseph, more or less mindful. So what what is that? And I'd say that 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 experience of kind of more or less mindful is where we're kind of partially aware, but partially caught by something, caught by some thought or some belief, or, or there's thoughts going on in the background perhaps that we're, we're kind of believing or kind of not so clearly aware of, or some state of mind in the background that we're not so clearly aware of that's kind of pulling some of our attention. And yet we know, we, we know we're here. So there's this, this almost in-between place where we, we can be aware that there's stuff going on. And yet we, we are aware. Um, in my experience, this more or less mindful place, often it's like a um, certain aspect of our experience we're aware of more clearly and some other aspect of our experience we're not so aware of. So there's, there's a partial disconnection from our experience. It's almost like there's this delusive filter over a chunk of our experience and yet we're able to see some other part of it. And then um, this question, this, this question I will only briefly address at this point. Um, but it's a question about uh, my own exploration of sleepiness, fatigue, low energy states, and what have I learned from this exploration? How has it furthered my practice? Um, I'll just I'll just touch on this briefly here, um, in particular as it relates to to delusion. Um, so I think the first piece that 
that I learned really on this um, exploration around with around sleepiness is that I had a belief that if I was sleepy, I couldn't be mindful. So that was a delusion. And the 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 beginning of exploring um, low energy states, um, sleepiness, dullness, sloth and torpor helped me to gain confidence that, at the beginning of confidence, that actually it is possible to be mindful of anything. And so that confidence came around working with with uh, the sleepiness. And in particular, in one, in one um, retreat, exploring, exploring the edge of sleep, you know, really um, what I noticed at some point, again, you know, we have all kinds of beliefs around sleepiness and those beliefs, and beliefs are a huge part of delusion, what I talked about this morning, beliefs around meditation. When beliefs are not seen and known as beliefs, they often are filtering how we re- relate to experience, and that is a form of delusion. When, we're, when we don't recognize that we're believing something and acting as if it's true, that is a form of delusion. And so the, um, the exploration around sleepiness, you know, in, in being with, for two years, I think, it was a couple of year time frame where I really worked with this. And, um, you know, there, there were uh, times when in that exploration, I would explore the possibility of, okay, let's see if I can bring the energy up a little bit. Actually, this relates a little bit to the the question around is this wisdom or is this illusion? Is this wisdom or is this not so helpful? Um, and, uh, you know, in many situations when I had experienced low energy, it was possible to do some things like maybe note a little more clearly or, um, um, or, um, um, bring the energy up through a little faster walking or doing something, some kind of movement to elevate the energy a little bit. And that was useful many times. In this particular retreat at this time of my practice, any movement to try to change the state of the sleepiness or dullness, it was, I, I got, it's like I got immediate feedback that this was not helpful. It spun my mind out into a kind of a hindrance attack, into um, restlessness, and it, it, was like, it was like physically painful to do anything. It's like as soon as I tried to do anything that would shift that sleepiness, it was, it was so painful. And so it's like, okay, okay, sleepiness, I get it. You are really telling me this is what needs to be seen. And so, you know, really, and so I began to kind of question or explore, okay, there's got to be some way to let the mindfulness begin to come up into the sleepiness. And so this was the beginning of that real exploration around seeing, can the mindfulness penetrate this very thick, habitually delusive state? And so that was the exploration, really exploring that. Can the mindfulness come up into it? 
And uh, through that exploration, I learned a lot about how possible that was. Um, and then one particular experience that was kind of mind-blowing that I am... Um, um, Doing the lying meditation made this possible because in the lying meditation, you know, if you fall asleep, there isn't some kind of a body drop that actually wakes you up. And so I would fall asleep and wake up and fall asleep and wake up. And at one point, um, I discovered, and I won't go into all the details of how this unfolded, but I discovered the possibility that, you know, in, in exploring, you know, being mindful as best as I could in the falling asleep process and missing it over and over again, but not, you know, not, not judging myself for that, not judging myself for the fact I'd fallen asleep, but just fall asleep and then, oh, wake up, oh, missed it. Okay, let's just keep trying. Just see, mindfulness, maybe mindfulness can go a little further this time. And at some point, the, mind, the mindfulness followed the sleepiness right through the moment of falling asleep and into a lucid dream. And uh, the lucid dream was that I was meditating in my room in the exact position that I was meditating. It was like it was indistinguishable from reality, really. Because the dream was that I was meditating in my room in the forest refuge, in the posture that I was in. The only way I knew that I was dreaming is that my legs floated. And I knew that that was not physically possible. And so it's like, when I saw that, it's like that experience completely burst any idea that there's any state that the mind cannot be mindful of. It's like, wow, that's pretty impressive. The mind can see that. I had no idea that would be possible. And it was really just this willingness to let the mindfulness go without trying to keep the mind in a certain state. And so, you know, that, that's one of the big pieces I learned through being willing to explore one of these habitually delusive states. It's possible to be mindful way more than I could have even ever conceived. And there's a piece of the question is, um, how has this increased my understanding of Anicca, Anatta, or Dukkha? Well, certainly that understanding that the, the mindfulness could follow the attention into sleep, that was, that was not self, because there's no way I could do that. There's no way I could have said, okay, I'm going to watch, you know, I'm going to be mindful while falling asleep. I mean, I just set the intention to, to see what can the mindfulness see. But if there's an, a kind of, I'm going to do this, that's going to get in the way. And certainly seeing how the clinging to the idea that sleepiness is a problem, that's dukkha. So that's a little bit around the delusion of not connecting and some of the flavors of not connecting. And then this set of delusions, uh, kind of delusions based on conditioning. 
And this, this is a more insidious kind of delusion. It's much less obvious to us because we can be aware. It's not like we're sleepy necessarily when we're operating through our views, our filters, our agendas, our ideas. You know, we, we can be aware and unaware that we are taking in information in a biased way. This happens all the time. This is, this is a huge part of our experience and is actually you know, partly our, uh, our human uh, systems are connected to this because we have this um, capacity. I mean, attention, attention itself. The nature of attention is, you know, to let us land on something and not attend to other things so that we can accomplish something. I participated in a study at one point um, that was about what they called the attentional gap. There was a a kind of a belief in neuroscience that uh, when the mind oriented to pay attention to something, attentional blink, I think it was called, attentional blink, that when the mind oriented to pay attention to something, that there would be no way for the mind to know other things in that moment. It's kind of like the, the, the landing of the mind on that experience obscures anything else. And there was a belief that it was a hardwired amount of time for that attentional blink. And there were some people who had done some meditation, who had talked to people in meditation, who had kind of said, maybe not, you know. I, I think that this is possible, that this may not be a hardwired thing, but more just a, a kind of a clinging, a clinging to something that we attend to. And so I participated in this experiment. Several of us from the three-month course participated in this experiment. And we did the experiment before and after the three-month course. And the experiment was that we um, were shown uh, rapidly changing letters. Just so rapidly that you could not s- identify them all. And embedded in that stream of letters, you know, we had, we had goggles on. So, like, we weren't, we weren't seeing anything else. We could really focus on these letters that were, that were changing. Um, and... You know, so that the, the, this is just like this little square of changing number. But my experience felt like it was a stream, like it was falling. That was the, the feeling of it. It's like falling letters. And so um, I would see this falling letters. And embedded in that stream of falling letters were, they said, well, there'd be one or two numbers. And my task was to catch those numbers out of that stream. And... Boy, the first few times it's like, didn't see anything, didn't see any numbers at all. But over a little while of doing it, I began to pick out the numbers. And the experience was very interesting because when the mind saw a number, that number hung in that space for what seemed like about a second. Probably was maybe less, maybe a quarter second. It was like, it made it very easy to see it and remember it. 
trivially easy to recognize it. And so, so I knew in that moment, you know, while I was seeing that, you know, there were, there were letters going by, but I did not see those letters because the mind had kind of created a perception there. And the physical experience was I was seeing it. You know, this is perception. You know, the mind creates the perception. And then there's something extra, like, like the mind holds on to that perception. But it feels like it's physically happening there. I mean, it was so persuasive <laughs> that, oh, the number stopped and just showed me the number, that the stream stopped and I could see that number. And so this, this kind of, um, the way our perceptual processes work is when we attend to something, it filters out other things. Now, just to kind of finish that, I mean, this, that's the main piece I wanted to point to in that story, but just to say that um, uh, at the end, when I did this study at the end, um, and I would say that much of the time I just saw one number in the stream, um, but then be- because they had embedded two numbers really close together, within that gap, you know, within that blink time, there were two numbers embedded. And with that way the mind worked to say, let that number hang, I wouldn't see the second one. But after the three months of meditation, um, when I saw that first number, I just relaxed. And I could see a second number. And they, they came in, they were so excited. <laughs> it was like, you know, even just one person being able to do that proves that it's not a hardwired thing, this attentional blink. So, so that, was, that was kind of the, the punchline of that study was that they proved that it wasn't a, that, that kind of way that the mind orients and filters out other things is not a hardwired thing in our brains. It is a function of our perceptual and conceptual processes. And this is a lot of what the Buddha points to, our perceptual and conceptual processes create filters that indicate or, or have us take in information in a certain way, take in some information and not other information. So um, there's also another function of our attention. So the selective attention is a piece of it. And so selective attention can function anytime we have a belief or an, even an agenda. You know, even if we have an agenda about some task that we're doing, that agenda can create the conditions where we see some things and not others. There's a, another study, and many of you have heard this, a story. Some of you, many times, I've told the story about the the uh, the gorilla in the basketball study, um, um, and just briefly, that the participants in this study were asked to count the number of times a basketball passed between people in a white shirt, and um, in a video, in a video. So the vid- they played the video, and they were they, most people could do that. At the end of that, they could say, yes, that's this many times, and it was the right number. 
And then a few of the people were kind of like, well, was there a vi- uh, was there like a gorilla going through that video? You know, so there was this kind of, uh, some people kind of knew there was something else going on. But, and indeed, there was, during that passing of the basketball, there was a person in a gorilla suit that walked through the video and actually stood there in the middle of this. It was not like, you know, trying to sneak around the back. It was like right in the middle. And uh, the vast majority of the people do not see the gorilla. This is selective attention. You know, it's like the mind is focused on a task. And because of that focus, it will not see certain things. This not seeing, in a way, is a kind of delusion. I mean, it, it, the not seeing, I mean, the, the selective attention itself is a function of our minds. This is going to happen. This is the way our minds work. That when we are taking in information, we are not taking in everything that's out there. We think we're seeing things as if a video is recording things and our minds are just seeing everything. But that is not the way our minds work. Our minds are constantly screening in and screening out information. And if we, I mean, where the delusion comes in is if we believe that our minds are accurately seeing information. And in this study, there was some number of people, a few people in the study, some, I think, maybe like a quarter or something of the people that did not see the gorilla when they showed the video back and, you know, they had clearly would see the gorilla when the video played back because, you know, you don't have that agenda anymore. And some number of people said that cannot be the same video because they so trusted their own perception that they would have seen the gorilla. That is a pretty powerful form of delusion that we do not recognize this, this screening in and screening out function of our minds. And then, you know, concepts, ideas, beliefs have this, this function too. You know, we, we, we hold on to our own beliefs that are created through our own personal conditioning. The famous story of the, of the blind people and the elephant each touching a particular place of the elephant and then coming up with the view. Well, this is what an elephant is. An elephant is like a post. An elephant is like a hose. An elephant is like a broom based on what part of the elephant they touched. But then when they had the conversation with each, with each other, like, well, well, this is what an elephant is like. Rather than holding the perspective, well, maybe I, I didn't see the whole elephant or get a sense of the whole elephant holding to their views. This is what an elephant is. You're wrong. That's the, that's the teaching story, is that they came to blows. They actually fought with each other over this view. No, you're wrong. An elephant is not like this. This way of holding information as we have concepts about the world, we believe our concepts, and... Um, hold to them as truths and and 
you know, not only do we hold to them as truths, we are unwilling often and unable to take in information to the contrary. Now, this is classic confirmation bias, the psychological uh, concept of confirmation bias, that we tend to orient towards information that confirms what we believe and to discount or not even notice information that we don't believe. So this is also ways that delusion works. You know, in our culture, you know, our culture has the kind of belief that, you know, one, one belief we might recognize about American culture, you know, America's the land of opportunity. Anybody who works hard enough can achieve their dreams. And this kind of view is very pervasive, leading to both a, um, a bias and a, a kind of a, an unawareness of privilege that comes with skin color and economic um, privilege. You know, the... the the, the unawareness that, you know, a certain um, set of doors are open in, cer- in, in, in some cases for people with a certain, you know, white skin in particular in our culture. And so this, um, this leads to the kind of unawareness because of that belief that's so pervasive. It's like, well, I worked really hard not seeing all of the ways that doors were open for, uh, for someone who's white. So not seeing the privilege of that. So this kind of bias in the mind, this kind of delusion in the mind, you know, not seeing the gorilla in the video only creates probably suffering as much as you think, wow, you know, how I was really stupid not to see that gorilla or, wow, they're wrong, you know. So, but this kind of delusion, this form of delusion, personal delusion, cultural delusion, creates the conditions for so much suffering in our world. The, uh, the um, you know, prejudice related to, you know, racism sexism, ageism, ableism, uh, homophobia, all of those kind of um, biases in our mind, so much suffering results from this. And so this kind of delusion is a big source of suffering, not only internally but externally in our culture when we have delusions about ourselves, who we are, what we're capable of, we also limit ourselves. We suffer believing. My belief, belief, I'm no good, I'm a failure. I'm, I'm, I'm that, that kind of belief, a pervasive belief that underlay the self-hatred that I experienced, you know, that, that was rooted in belief, just thought. It was rooted in a thought. 
So real suffering results from this form of delusion. It's not just simply, you know, oh, well, we just screen some things in and not other things. There's an active bias going on that, you know, sometimes what we can explore is if we're in a situation where, you know, we're kind of going through the world and, and something happens where we do something and there is suffering that results and it's like, wow, you know, I certainly didn't intend for that to happen. That wasn't my intention. Um, you know, per, and, and sometimes what can happen there is the idea that, well, you know, so it wasn't my intention to, to, to harm that person. So it must be their, you know, their karma. You know, I, I, it's not me. You know, I, I, I'm not at fault here. There's a form of delusion there in that there's, there's often some part of our lack of understanding that comes into play in unintentional um, suffering that's created in the world. And so when there is suffering that's created from something that you are engaged in, something that you do, you get some feedback maybe that, wow, that really hurt or it's clear that suffering resulted from some action, rather than saying, well, that wasn't my intention, so I can move on. Be curious about what did I not understand? What did I not know? What was hidden, hidden from me? What Maybe there was some belief. Maybe just some lack of information. And so that a curiosity around suffering in those kinds of situations can be really helpful to expose unawareness, delusion, beliefs that were kind of not seen. So there's many, many forms of this kind of delusion. So many examples, and I think I'll just move on at this point on that one. Um, I will mention one uh, related to a question. I won't read the question, it's kind of long, but um, it's come up in a couple of different ways. And this is about beliefs in meditation, essentially, you know, um, uh, kind of what I talked about this morning, is what I talked about this morning, the beliefs that come in meditation are this form of belief. Uh, they're based on our own personal conditioning, how we've meditated, what instructions we've gotten, how our teachers have taught us. This is our personal conditioning, the beliefs that we have about meditation. And, um, you know, sometimes there's a, and, and I think in some ways, you know, I think all meditation uh, forms have their their kind of place where it's easy to misunderstand some part of the teaching. And in this particular style that I'm teaching, you know, there's a lot of emphasis on receive, cultivate that continuity of mindfulness, and trust that the unfolding will happen. Trust, trust, trust. And so sometimes there can be a sense of, okay, all I need to do is settle back and just watch. Well, that um, has a lot of power to it and can begin to open us to things that we haven't seen. But there are times and ways that kind of our perspective or our view 
and especially these unseen views about our practice, might never be seen if we don't think to question them or don't have a teacher to help kind of point us to. There's more to be seen here. So when I first started practicing with Saito Utejaniya, um, I went in and uh, reported to him, so I'm relaxing, and what I notice as I relax, the attention notices body sensations. It doesn't notice much else. And, uh, and he said, that's the habit of your mind. That is what has been conditioned. That is your habitual meditation practice. And it was true. <laughs> that was the main object that I had used. And so when I relaxed and received experience, that was what was obvious. Sayadaw said, you have to consciously explore what else is available. You know, if, if I had just taken that instruction, okay, relax, receive, I might still be just sitting there, body sensations, body sensations, body sensations. Changing body sensations, well, that's useful to notice, changing body sensations. But what he, po- he, he, he said, you have to start to watch the mind. You have to start to see that. And, um, you know, the, the he didn't particularly tell me what to do there, but I used his other main instruction, which was check the attitude. And so I went back, and I didn't, I didn't like try to really radically alter what I was doing. In fact, I sat down and I, I said, okay, yep, relax, receive, allow, oh, body sensation, vibration, pulsing, tingling, coolness, just like this, this mass of body sensations. And, and somewhere in there, be like, all right, Sayadaw suggested, check the attitude, you know, larger. It's like, okay, how's the mind here? What's going on in the mind? It's like, oh, the mind is happy. The mind is at ease. There's calmness. And I had not consciously known that was happening in the mind. So that was the beginning of expanding that perspective. And so, um, you know, we need to... uh, the 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 view I think sometimes Sayadaw says yes mindfulness continuity of awareness they're important but right view is where it begins so we need to keep kind of checking you know okay so against against you know not just our own experience but against some of the other things that are talked about it's like okay um, I'm noticing this set of experience, you know. Other things are being described. Maybe there's more I can see. And so again, you know, we have this lens or this, our, 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 our training of what we habitually pay attention to creates the conditions for us to see certain things and not other things. And right view is a helpful uh, kind of... Um, broadening to help us see things that we might not even think are possible to see. So again, this is that function of the mind that has a habit, a perspective, it takes in 
a certain set of information because that's what's familiar. We orient to what's familiar and don't even notice what's unfamiliar. So this uh, last section, I'll just talk about briefly the section on human delusion because this is a topic that will cover you know, the, the topics of understanding and beginning to recognize how we take what is impermanent to be permanent, how we take what is not self to be self, how we take what is unreliable to be reliable. We'll continue that conversation over time. So this, you know, this is the basic human these are human distortions. And, you know, that, that example of the this attentional blink study that I did, you know, that's kind of the beginning of how we kind of attribute solidity to experience. Because the mind will, when we attend to something, there's a kind of a coming together of information and the mind holds on to that. My understanding of that hovering of the number is that the mind was holding on to the concept of that. Because the physicality of what was actually coming into the eye was not the number hovering there. That happened in the mind. So this kind of, oh, kind of reification of perception into concept this is where that sense of what taking what is impermanent to be permanent begins. You know, that our minds kind of pick up on something and solidify it. So, you know, we tend to take what is impermanent as permanent. And I'll just, I'll just briefly go through each of these. So, um, when partly partly the kind of the rapidity of change you know that rapidity of change in in that stream um, sometimes a rapidity of change will mask uh, impermanence so like for instance the the you know the the, f- the there's the the story uh, or not the story but the example of when we were kids when you were a kid, did you ever like have a sparkler and whirl it around and like get a sense that there's a circle in the air? You know, it's like the, the, the fire on the end of the stick as you draw the circle. You can move the, move the, cir- the, the stick fast enough that it appears as if there's a circle of fire hovering in the air. You know, so that's the, f- the rapidity of the movement creates the illusion of something solid hanging or something in the air hanging in the air and this is part of our perceptual processes and so this 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 kind of just the fastness of change can mask the change our minds move to the concept often rather than the the rapidity of change so concepts also mask change like that number hanging there the mind moves to the concept and because of that concept then can't see change 
we start to, through our practice, begin to recognize the difference between the concept of something and the actual experience of something. And this begins to uh, poke holes a little bit in that, that attribution of permanence. And so when we see, you know, one, one exploration around this, um, if you're sensing something to be solid or stable or, or, or kind of a sense of something that's remaining, um, anything that feels stable or solid, check it out. Let the attention rest with that thing that seems solid and hold, again, so, so this a way to begin to, to see something that we might not naturally see is to hold the perspective that, wow, it sure seems solid, but the, these teachings are telling me maybe not. So what's there if I, if I hang out with that? You know, what, what? And this was, this was a practice of mine for a period of time. Anytime I felt like something was solid, it's like, well, let's just hang out with that. And it, it would start revealing itself to be, you know, composed of various threads or aspects or sensations or kind of a, a mixture of, of sensation and thought and concept and uh, emotion. Just, wow, like the mind puts a whole bunch of stuff together and creates a thing out of it. And we can start to see those threads kind of breaking up that solidity. Then we take what's unreliable to be reliable. We take, um, and this is really the, the delusion, the delusion of, that's embedded in greed and aversion, um, is that you know, something along the lines of, yeah, pleasure is where I'll find happiness. Get pleasure get rid of unpleasant, that is where happiness is found. That is a misunderstanding of what is actually a reliable source for happiness, which we begin to, to recognize as we begin to touch into the, uh, the states of greed and aversion themselves and recognizing, too, the impermanent nature of whatever it pleasant thing we're going for is, or the, um, you know, the impermanent nature of um, our, our um, unpleasant phenomenon, all the work we're trying to do to, to hold something unpleasant at bay, you know, that the, all the work there is, is suffering. Um, so the, the, the greed and the aversion themselves are the, either the moving towards, it's like, yeah, ooh, you know, it's kind of like that, that launching towards is the greed or the pushing away, the, the, the kind of the sticky, sticking to, to get rid of, you know, the separation, you know, that to aversion. That's the, that's the experience of greed and aversion themselves, and that's what's familiar in those, I think, as we get familiar with that, that pull or that push around greed and aversion. But underlying that pull and that push is the belief that following through on that pull or that push are gonna be, make me happy. And that's delusion. It creates a certain kind of happiness. It's a, 
You know, it, it, there is a form of happiness that comes from getting what we want. There is a form of happiness. It's a fleeting form of happiness. It does not, it too is unreliable. And so it is, there's a kind of happiness that comes from getting with what we want, but it is an unreliable happiness. It lasts sometimes for just moments. So the, uh, uh, the understanding that we, again, right view begins to help us recognize maybe Right view tells us there's, there are better kinds. Of, there's, there's deeper happiness out there. More reliable happiness available through not following through on the wanting and the aversion. More happiness available through release, through letting go. Boy, that may be hard to believe at first because that delusion of happiness comes from getting pleasant, getting rid of unpleasant, that is built into our human system. It is not, it is not fortunately hardwired into our human system. It's kind of programmed. We could use the, uh, you know, the computer analogy here. It's like a program that's very, a deep program in there. But it is not, uh, it is not hardwired. There, I- there is an understanding that can free us from, I mean, so it's not hardwired that we have to move towards what's pleasant and, and, uh, and that, you know, that, 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 that the wanting will follow from being with something pleasant. That is not hardwired. It is possible to be in the presence of pleasant and just be in the presence of pleasant and not have wanting arise. When the mind fully understands that delusion, the wanting won't arise. And so this delusion, and so again, looking at where it is that you think, you, it, what, what seems to be, what, what is it that I think is going to be reliable? Boy, some of the meditation beliefs can come into here too. Yeah, if I, if I get that concentration state again, that's what's going to make me happy. How much suffering have we done over that one? So investigate where it is that we think we'll find happiness. And then seeing what is not self is self. This is a huge topic. Um, I'll just say, we'll talk about this more. (laughs) 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 And encourage you I've been saying this in the groups. It's like, again, the exploration is the sense of self. The teaching here is the sense of self is a delusion. That, I mean, actually, the sense of self is also a kind of a, a natural process in our minds. Um, the taking it to be a thing is the delusion. Taking it to be some kind of a truth and it feels so intuitively true that I exist Um, and so it's not so helpful to try to when the feeling of "Mm, this is me or this is how can it not be me choosing you know how, how can that you know I'm the one who does this who else is doing it if I'm not doing it and so the feeling of sense of self begins to be 
kind of, we begin to recognize it. And this is the first step here. I mean, I went, I went, you know, before I even heard this, before I heard this teaching, there was just no question. It was like the sense of self was like, like that was, that was not something I noticed as a thing. It just was me. And yet in meditation, I'm hearing a lot of reports. I'm noticing the sense of self. But I'm belie- I believe it. I mean, it's, of course, it still feels like me. But you're noticing it. That's where we begin, is noticing it. And so when it feels like there's a sense of I or me or mine, the practice isn't to try to say, well, that is not self, so I should try to figure out how that's not self. How can I see not self in that self? Instead, the encouragement is to explore what are you taking to be self? What is that experience of I or me or mine? Explore that. Don't try to somehow see not self in that. Understand, again, the understanding. Understand what it is you are taking to be self. And more to come on that topic. So, as I said, um, the biggest part of delusion is kind of opening the mind to there's thing there are things I'm not seeing. and a curiosity about that. Delusion is operating. We can basically assume delusion is operating. We don't have to beat ourselves up about this. It's like, this is human. And and yet the, the practice does give us the tools to begin to see the wisdom grows the wisdom grows and exposes more and more of that delusion. And yet, you know, as long as we're not free, there's some kind of delusion going on in there. So that's kind of like, okay, what, what am I not seeing? What a great question. What am I not seeing? So let's just sit for a few moments. Just letting the words You don't have to hold on to any of this, any of these words. Almost like the way this works is the language, the teaching can go in just like rain falling on the landscape and filtering in down through the soil. 
And at some point, some of that wisdom may be taken up as we notice something in our experience. Like the water is taken up by the root of a plant. So you don't have to hold on to it or try to think about it. Just recognize and receive 